Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today we are going to do a show on the Jihad in the North Caucasus. So I'm very, very happy to have Mark Youngman on the line with us all the way from the UK. So welcome Mark and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And for our listeners, Mark is a doctoral researcher at the University of Birmingham, and his research looks at relationships between ideology and organized political violence. So um, he has a lot of work in the North Caucasus region, uh, the research that he's done. So we're looking forward to really getting into this topic, which I think hasn't been touched on enough, and it's very important. So thank you for being here, Mark. And for our listeners, we just want to let you know that we're recently on Spotify, which we're very excited about. And of course, we're still on iTunes and Stitcher. We're also on Patreon. So if you love the show and you want to support fantastic conversations in security and tech and international relations, we'd really, really love your support. So just throwing that out there, shameless self-promotional pitch. <laughs> but Mark, to start off with, why don't you provide our listeners with an overview of this conflict in the North Caucasus, just to get us started. Okay, sure. So um, for the listeners who don't already know, uh, the North Caucasus is the uh, Muslim-majority region of southern Russia, uh, and it's where Russia borders Georgia and Azerbaijan. So geographically, it's actually closer to northeastern Turkey than it is to Moscow. Um, and the the part of the region that's best known for historical reasons is Chechnya, uh, and Chechnya is probably the area that most of your listeners will have heard of. Um, but over the last, uh, over a decade, um, the insurgency has been spread across, in the main, four republics. So you have Chechnya, Dagestan, Ingushetia, and Kabardino-Balkaria. And actually, for the last seven or eight years, uh, it's been Dagestan that's been the focal point of violence, not Chechnya. But in, in order to kind of understand where the, the modern insurgency comes from, it really is back to Chechnya that you have to look, uh, and in particular the uh, Chechen Wars of 94-96 and 1999-2002. So in 1994-1996, uh, you have the self-proclaimed Chechen Republic of Ichkiria under Joko Dudayev, uh, and... The, the Republic of Ichkiria fights a, a war of independence with Russia. Now, that war was effectively uh, won by Chechnya, um, but it was waged under the, the banner of uh, nationalist separatism. So Islam really only played a, a kind of a secondary and an instrumental role. And um, proof of that comes from, I mean, you've got various proofs of that, actually. You've got the fact that if you look at the, the various state-building initiatives of the Chechen Republic, um, the constitution, the, the legislative initiatives, the various um, state projects that are launched. Uh, Islam isn't really central to most of those. You have a very famous uh, anecdote of Joko Dudayev, which showed his attitude to religion, where he, uh, he told a campaign rally that the uh, Muslims in the North Caucasus are the most, most devout Muslims in the world, uh, and they pray three times a day. And when it was pointed out to him that that should be five times a day, he kind of just said, well, that's how much freedom we have in the North Caucasus. That's how devout we are, that we can pray five times a day. Um, and then also, 
after the war ends, um, Dedaev is actually killed during the war. Uh, and after the war ends, you have presidential elections in Chechnya. And the winner in those elections is Aslan Maskhadov. Uh, and he's really the more moderate of all the, uh, the candidates. So he defeats a number of more radical, more, should we say, uh, Islamist-oriented candidates. Um, so you really have kind of a nationalist separatist struggle. But um, what I'd say is that first war, that war in 94 to 96, that really planted the seeds for the later changes that happened in the, in the conflict in the region. So in 1995, you have the arrival of uh, Emir Khattab. Um, and Khattab is probably, he's one of the most famous kind of the foreign jihadist fighters. Uh, he fought in Bosnia and Tajikistan. Uh, and in 1995, he goes to Chechnya with a group of approximately eight Afghan Arabs. Uh, and he starts to build up a, a network of foreign fighters uh, together with local supporters. And in particular, he forms a very important um, allegiance with Shamil Basayev, who is probably the most famous of the North Caucasian field commanders uh, and who was linked to the terrorist spectaculars of Nordos theater siege uh, and the uh, Beslan school siege. And so the influence of that kind of network around Khattab is fairly minimal in the period of the actual war itself. It has a fairly negligible impact on the outcome of that war. But in the period between the two wars, that network starts to build up quite a bit of influence. And then the second factor coming out of that first war is the fact that the status of Chechnya is never actually resolved. Uh, so instead you have a, a decision to delay uh, the final status of Chechnya for a period of 10 years. Um, you have a failure really to deal with the, the issue of demobilization of the various groups that actually fought the war. And you have a, a country and an, and an economy that has been um, kind of devastated by the effects of what was a very brutal war. And then on the Russian side, you also have Russia failing to honour its commitments. Uh, and you have the, the Russian military that is, shall we say, very eager to avenge its humiliation um, from being defeated in that war. So 1999, a new war breaks out. Uh, and a Casaspelli for that war is provided by the invasion of uh, a neighbouring Dagestan by Khattab and Shamil Basayev. Um, and there's no real fixed end date for for that second Chechen war because it was never officially qualified as a war. It was classified as a counter-terrorism operation. But by 2001-2002, the Chechens have abandoned Grozny and they've deliberately switched from warfare tactics from the kind of strategy of army against army to an explicitly insurgency-based uh, strategy. And so really from that period, you're kind of talking about the origins of the insurgency in the North Caucasus itself. And then over time, that conflict becomes regionalised, both as a deliberate Chechen strategy to kind of alleviate the pressure on Chechnya, and then also because of the preferences of regional actors and their involvement in the conflict. And then while all this is going on, you have considerable competition 
over the ideological ideological direction of the insurgency. So between 96 and 2005, you, you essentially have two um, ideological poles um, within the insurgency. You have a, a nationalist separatist branch uh, that's associated primarily with Aslan Maskhadov, and you have an Islamist wing that's associated with um, Khatab and Basayev. And that's a very simplistic reading of the, of the situation, um, because you have lots of field commanders with lots of very competing interests. But that's kind of like the two main poles that are competing for influence. And then over time, from 1996 to 2005, it's really the Islamist wing that's becoming more and more dominant. And the whole time throughout that period, uh, Aslan Maskhadov, the Chechen president, He's making concessions to the Islamists in order to kind of keep the insurgency united as a united front against Russia. But all the time that he's making these concessions, uh, he's getting weaker and weaker. His position is getting weaker and weaker. And you really have uh, the Islamist wing becoming dominant over the overall direction of the insurgency. When Mascado is killed in 2005, that's really a pivotal moment in the um, development of the insurgency because it marks the end really of what was the Ichkirian state building project so the Chechen independence state building project and what, however you view kind of Maskadov's concessions uh, and whatever your interpretations are of what that meant for the ideology of the insurgency Maskadov won elections that were recognised by both Russia and the West at the time uh, and therefore he enjoyed a certain degree of legitimacy. So that kind of carrier of legitimacy died with Maskadov. Once Maskadov's gone, his successor creates the Caucasian Front, uh, and that formalises the regionalisation of the conflict. And that Caucasus Front becomes the basis of what, in 2007, becomes the explicitly jihadist Caucasus Emirate, and it's the Caucasus Emirate that is the, the dominant movement until late 2014 when the Islamic State uh, emerges. So the Caucasus Emirate is the umbrella group under which uh, the regional insurgency fights. And it really that decision to proclaim the Caucasus Emirate, that uh, marked the final victory of the Islamist wing of the insurgency over the nationalist separatists. And it also highlighted the growing influence of the non-Chechen actors, over the overall direction of the insurgency. So, kind of summarising all that, I'd say what you have is you have a gradual jihadization of the conflict, you have a gradual regionalization of what was originally a Chechen separatist movement. And the simplistic explanation that you'll sometimes see people kind of grabbing hold of is that the Chechen separatist movement was essentially co-opted and taken over by the global jihadist movement. Now, we can come back to the, the relationship with the global jihadist movement in a minute, um, but I'd actually argue that there are at least five factors that kind of explain that evolution of the conflict, and particularly the ideological evolution. So firstly, you have um, the foreign actors themselves. So there's no doubt that they had a considerable influence on kind of the trajectory of the insurgency. They were well-organized and they were well-funded, um, and that enabled them to have a significant 
influence on the way events developed and on the ideological development of the insurgency. But the second factor would be the local actors. So the local actors were also key in deciding that direction. Khattab was only able to have the influence he had because he formed that crucial link-up with Basayev. And really, across the region, you have local ideologists who are advocating uh, an Islamist agenda. So without that local kind of buy-in and that local agency, that transformation can't happen. It can't happen that the kind of the influence of the global jihadist movement takes root. Then you have the fact that you're talking about an area that has been devastated by a brutal war, and this really kind of created fertile soil for kind of more radical approaches. And so in the post-Soviet period, what you have is the North Caucasus kind of rediscovering its Islamic identity. But in Chechnya, that's happening in the context of war. So it kind of takes a slightly more radical slant. The fourth thing is that you have what is a very deliberate Russian policy to actually radicalize the conflict. So Maskarov didn't become alienated just by chance. He didn't become alienated just because the Chechen separatist movement lost support on its own. There was kind of a systematic Russian policy to eliminate Maskarov's rivals and to isolate him and marginalize him. And that really weakened his position relative to the uh, Islamist wing. And then the final thing that I say is that you've got the changes in the international environment, uh, and in particular U.S. policy uh, in the post-9-11 era. era. Um, And the global jihadist movement is first and foremost a creation of U.S. policy. And it's a policy that kind of decided to ignore the differences between the various groups and to treat all of the jihadist groups as if they were saying, the same thing and all of the the groups around the world that are fighting under an Islamist banner as if they're all part of the same movement. Now, in the North Caucasus, I'd argue that created something of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it certainly made it much easier for Russia to kind of sell its actions in the North Caucasus to a global audience because it positioned itself as part of the global war on terror. Um, So that kind of brings you up to the where the the Caucasus Emirate was proclaimed and where you get kind of like the modern um, insurgent movement in the North Caucasus. So why don't we discuss this jihadization of the conflict? And I know your research specifically likes to look at ideologies. Maybe we could discuss some of the ideologies attached with this conflict or insurgency. So what you... What you have is the Caucasus Emirate is explicitly jihadist. So it advocates jihadism as its goal when it is actually proclaimed. You have um, you have a lengthy kind of statement from Dok Umarov, who was the leader who proclaimed the Caucasus Emirate. Um, and his lengthy statement kind of, it amounts to a founding document for the, the establishment of the Caucasus Emirate. And in that document, he explicitly says we are part of the the global jihadist movement. We are aligned with people who are fighting in other conflicts. The the problem really is, in, in saying what its ideology is, is that 
the North Caucasus doesn't really actually fit with many existing kind of understandings of jihadism. So if you look at kind of the, the classical approaches to what jihadist ideologies are, um, for example, you have the, the, the near enemy and the far enemy distinction. And that's kind of viewed as classical jihadism. But that's drawn from the study of groups that are operating in the Middle East and North Africa. And that kind of distinction between local Muslim rulers and kind of the far enemy being the US and the West, that distinction holds. You know, you can have that typology and it actually works. If you look at the North Caucasus, it's really unclear how that actually applies because the local rulers are Muslim, but they don't enjoy sovereignty. So Russia is the sovereign state and Russia is not obviously a Muslim state. So it can't really, the, the local rulers can't really be qualified as the near enemy in that they don't enjoy sovereignty. But Russia can also not really qualify as the near enemy because one of the key distinctions between the near and the far enemy is that the near enemy is Muslim. But it's not really the far enemy either, for the same reason that it enjoys sovereignty over the region. And, you know, if the far enemy is the US and the West, there's a big difference if you're North Caucasian insurgents between targeting the US and the West and targeting Russia, which is the kind of like ruling authorities in the region. So on that basis, because these typologies don't really fit, it's actually quite hard to say where the North Caucasus insurgency fits in relation to other insurgencies. The other kind of issue in making a characterization is that often people talk about jihadism as Salafi jihadism. Um, and I always think that's a very problematic way of looking at ideology because to call something Salafi jihadism, you're essentially prioritizing the religious dimension of the conflict and you're embedding religious motivations into your actual definitions of what the conflict is. A Salafi, by definition, cannot be indifferent to the religious dimension. But in the North Caucasus, you have people who are fighting for a range of reasons. And if you go through the, what the ideological position articulated by the various leaders are, there is a strong Salafi strand. You have individual leaders who... Um, should we say, articulate principles that would fit that kind of understanding of Salafism. But you also have a large amount who don't demonstrate any particular focus on, um, should we say, the particular the characteristics of Salafism. And so, I don't know, I think it's, you, you can call it jihadist, um, and that's absolutely true. But I think it comes back to when you say, where does what is the ideology of the North Caucasus insurgency? It comes back to the, the fact that the, the global jihadist movement, the global jihadist ideology, is a very kind of artificial creation. So I don't know how well that actually answers that question. No, it, it's, I, exact, I understand what you're getting at. There's something that in one of the articles when I was reading to do research on this show, you mentioned that ideologies are um, something that we should not treat as abstract. And I really liked that 
that thought and I can see what you're saying fits into that. So maybe if you could elaborate on that idea of them not being abstract, that would be fantastic. Okay, sure. Um, so the way I understand ideology is in layman's terms, it's essentially a vision of how the world is, how it should be, and then how we kind of bridge the divide between the two. And embedded within that, there are questions of identity, um, basically what type of people we should be in order to reach that ideal destination. Um, and I think if you look at the way ideology is kind of dealt with in traditional political science, since the end of the Cold War, ideology has been very much pushed to the margins. Um, so it's kind of been rejected as uh, kind of a legacy of the Cold War. Um, but I think when people understand ideology, they're often talking about ideology in very narrow terms. So most people, when they say, uh, you'll often hear people say it's not all about ideology. Uh, and what they mean is that when they understand ideology, they're talking about ideology as uh, existing in kind of a set of very narrow texts, for example. So the ideology of a political movement would be found in its manifesto or in kind of certain documents. But to my mind, that understanding of ideology is, is kind of far too narrow. So I think people can hold an ideology, a set of beliefs about how the world is, and then they can still be at the same time unaware of um, kind of the foundational documents, shall we say. So, for example, if you were to look at US politics, you will have people who you could ask them what their beliefs are and they will articulate positions that would be clearly in line with Republican beliefs. You will have them articulate positions that will be clearly identifiable as democratic beliefs. And yet if you ask those same people what's actually in the GOP kind of political platform, um, it's election manifesto, then they won't know. The same for the Democratic Party. Because most people don't actually study a set of core texts. And so I think ideology is something that's actually much broader than a set of documents. Um, when people say that it's not all about ideology, and it's an argument that you hear time and time again, essentially what they do is they argue that ideology is an instrumental device that's designed to kind of gain support uh, and to gain particular resources. So people adopt an ideology in order to basically manipulate audiences and attract their support. Um, you have ideology rejected because people focus on um, root cause explanations, uh, and in particular when people adopt uh, quantitative approaches that essentially reduces ideology to a very, very broad category. So when they say the ideology of this group is Islamist, the ideology of this group is communist, and all of the content of that ideology is stripped away. Um, but I think what's missing from kind of like these explanations is why, why that instrumentality works. So if you're saying that 
ideology that people employ ideology to attract the support of a particular audience then why is that audience then responsive to that ideology why are they able to actually faithfully hold that ideology uh, and kind of respond to it uh, and the person who's actually articulating it's not able to if you look at um for example people who employ kind of like socialization explanations for ideology they say ideology doesn't explain why people join particular groups um i think that's right i think that's often the case that ideology isn't a sufficient explanation but at the same time those very same people will say that ideology performs a role in kind of binding a group together so to me the reason you can't treat something is uh, ideology is something abstract is it doesn't really explain why ideology actually works how it works it doesn't explain why people respond to a particular ideology over another one um and so i think you have to actually move it from that abstract dis- discussion of ideology as a general phenomenon to actually say why it does an ideology hold a particular appeal and i think if you look at I think the Syrian conflict is a really good example of why ideology matters because I don't think um that you can actually explain the appeal of the Islamic state without reference to its ideology uh and in particular its decision to proclaim the caliphate so if you look at kind of the the mass mobilization that occurs from the west um all of that occurs after the proclamation of the caliphate If you look at the pledges of allegiance that happen from various groups around the world and this includes from the North Caucasus insurgency that follows the decision to proclaim the caliphate. And if you're kind of like explaining why people joined the Islamic state in particular they had a choice of groups that they could go to. They could have easily joined Al-Qaeda. They could have easily joined any of the other groups that are fighting in Syria. If you look at the kind of if you take like a root cause approaches and you look at the conditions in their home countries that led people to go and join the Islamic state they would be the same whichever groups they they chose to join so i think there is something particular about the appeal of the caliphate that appealed to people at the same time you could i mean i've i've seen the uh, islamic state referred to as a cut and paste ideology it, because it doesn't really have sophisticated uh kind of manifestos or documents that actually set out what its ideological position is and i think that kind of provides a good example of why you can't say ideology is located in kind of a set of texts a lot of the people who have gone there wouldn't know what's in those documents if they had them anyway but there is something that that set of beliefs has tapped into that explains why that group has had a particular appeal over other groups I completely agree with that and on that note looking at the environment in the North Caucasus how can we say that potentially political opportunities or even limitations have helped shape or form these ideologies as well as constraints on activism and so forth um that's a i mean that's a very difficult question i'm not sure that you can really say 
the political opportunities, the lack of political opportunities, I don't think you can say that they've um, shaped or, or really helped explain the ideologies that have emerged. Um, I think, in a way, it's actually the other way around. So, um, ideologies... The, I think the political opportunities aspect of it, um, ideologies have to answer practical questions. And so when you're talking about political opportunities, I think you're actually talking about, um, you're asking questions about why do ideologies appeal and when do they actually manage to hold an appeal. So if you look at the North Caucasus, you have very constrained political opportunities, and that's consistent throughout for example, the entire uh, lifespan of the Caucasus Emirate. Um, at times you have more constrained opportunities where um, a whole range of actors are uh, really struggling to actually access the public space at all. At other times you have more, more relaxed environments. But I think what you see in terms of the ideological appeal of the, the Caucasus Emirate um, I think the the ideology has to actually be able to answer um, the the actual real questions that people are kind of facing. So, one of the, the big problems that the Caucasus Emirate had was it essentially reached something of an ideological dead end that it couldn't explain how it was offering a solution to the problems that people were experiencing. It couldn't explain how it would actually solve the lack of political opportunities. And so you have a very practical dimension to ideology where it's failing to mobilize support because people, even people who bought into the idea of um, radical Islam, even people who bought into the, the kind of the righteousness of the, adopting jihad as a solution they couldn't see how jihad was going to actually um result in changing the situation in the north Caucasus and actually changing those political opportunities so i think the the relationship between the two is that the ideologies have to come up with an answer to the political opportunities i think if you say that political opportunities kind of give rise to ideologies then that kind of gives uh, ideology a power and a capacity all of its own. Um, and I think it's more that the, the ideologies have to respond to the available political opportunities. So looking at the Caucasus Emirates, the Emirates Caucasus, or IK, you mentioned that it slowly declined. And I was wondering if we could talk about that a bit, the reasons, and then where did it go to after that? So, um, really, you have uh, the you have a long term decline in the the North Caucasus insurgency. So, the the first thing that's worth bearing in mind is that the actual proclamation of the Caucasus Emirate was born um, first and foremost out of the weakness of the insurgency. So, you have. Basically, that Chechen resistance movement, uh, including its Islamist wing, kind of expanding its appeal 
um, because its original support base is no longer sufficient. So it seeks to kind of mobilize um, Muslims regionally because it's no longer uh, attracting enough support to sustain itself as a resistance movement within Chechnya itself. When when the Caucasus Emirate was founded, um, it had just lost Maskadov. So, as I said, it had lost its kind of like standard barrier of legitimacy for the the Chechen independent state. Um, it had just lost uh, Maskadov's successor, um, Sadulayev, who was the one who established the Caucasus Front. It had lost Shamil Basayev, who. Um, like I said, was one of the, the kind of leading field commanders, uh, one of the best-known figures, and it was really his personal network that, that formed the basis for that um, caucus front. And then you also have uh, a general amnesty um, that drew support away from the insurgency by encouraging people, to, encouraging um, those fighting in Chechnya to disengage from the conflict. And you have the, the defection of uh, Ahmad Kadyrov, and he's been replaced by his son, Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, drawing away support from the Chechen and the moderate, or shall we say the non-Islamist branches of the insurgency. So the Caucasus Emirate is really born from a situation of weakness. And even though you see a spike in regional violence, uh, particularly outside Chechnya, you see high levels of violence in Ingushetia, you see high levels of violence in uh, Kabardino-Balkaria, and ultimately you see the actual focal point of insurgency switching to Dagestan. Even within that context of increasing violence through to 2009, 2010, when it really peaked, um, that never really reaches the same level that you see during the actual Chechen wars and you see in the early 2000s. And... In the early 2000s, the insurgency was capable of mustering forces of several hundred people who would carry out, who were capable of carrying out raids. So you had, for example, uh, an attack on Nalchik in Kabardino-Balkaria, the capital, which uh, consisted of several hundred people. You had a raid on Nazran, which consisted of several hundred people. This is kind of like a mass mobilization of forces to attack uh, single targets or single or, or clusters of targets because they attack multiple facilities. Under the Caucasus Emirate, you never really see that capacity. So when it carried out major attacks, they were typically much smaller operations. And you're talking at best kind of tens and twenties rather than hundreds of people. Um, then in the run-up to the Sochi Winter Olympics in 2014, you see considerable security service pressure on the insurgency. So in terms of uh, constraining the ability of the insurgency to operate, it comes under intense security service pressure, the intense increase in uh, the number of security service operations. So its ranks are being continually decimated, and it really fails to actually replenish its ranks. And so you have a cumulative effect of, of violence by the security services that, that kind of drains its ranks. Then the other factor I'd say is that by, uh, shall we say, early to mid-2010, the Caucasus Emirate has actually lost a number of its most important 
ideologists. So in Kabardino-Balkaria, Anzo Astamirov, who's one of the founding architects of the, um, the Caucasus Emirate itself, and the leader of the Kabardino-Balkarian branch, he's been killed. Uh, in Ingushetia, you have the death of uh, Saeed Buratsky, who was an ideological figure who joined the insurgency from outside. He's not actually in the North Caucasian. But that's coupled with the arrest of the leader of the Ingushetian branch, uh, Emir Magas. So you have a kind of the decline in the capacity of that branch of the insurgency, and you also have the loss of um, leaders in Dagestan, in particular um, Varapov, Magomed Varapov, who was essentially lined up as the replacement to Andrzej Astemirov. In Chechnya itself, you have the death of Supyan Abdullayev, who was a key ideologist and a key supporter of Dr. Umarov, who was the emir of the Caucasus Emirate. So over a very short period of time, you have the insurgency losing most of its main ideological leaders, and it never really re- managed to replace them. You see individuals um, appearing at various points, but in terms of like that caliber of people who could articulate coherent arguments about what the insurgency was fighting against, what the insurgency was fighting for, and then how it actually sought to achieve its goals, the insurgency had really lost most of those people by mid-2010. Um, and if you compare, for example, Anzo Astemirov, who, as I said, he was one of the kind of founding ideologists, he was a, a very sophisticated ideologist. He was someone who could really craft a complex argument, and he articulated a very a very clear vision of what the insurgency was fighting against. He articulated very clearly what he considered to be wrong with existing society. Um, and he was one of those who articulated principles that could be qualified as Salafi. Um, and he articulated a clear argument against democracy, arguing democracy was incompatible with Islam. Uh, he argued... Um, very clearly for goals in terms of establishing not only Sharia as an abstract, but how Sharia law would work in practice. And so he was someone who could construct very sophisticated arguments, regardless of what you think of the actual argument he's putting forward, there was a, a quality to the argument itself. If you look a couple of leaders after him, you have leaders who articulate absolutely nothing about what they're fighting against. They articulate nothing about what they're fighting for. And if Astamirov was erudite, if you look at the person who came two steps after him, he was someone who could, I mean, to be blunt, he could barely form coherent sentences. And so you have this erosion of the, uh, should we say, the intellectual quality of the insurgency. And so... What what you have is going into the Sochi Olympics and coming out of the Sochi Olympics is you have an insurgency that's really struggling to replenish its ranks. You have the loss of kind of key personnel and you really have an insurgency that's under great pressure. And then the Syrian conflict starts. 
And so the, the North Caucasus insurgency is going into the Syrian conflict from a position of weakness. And even though the, the decline of the Caucasus Emirate really starts before the Syrian conflict, it's the Syrian conflict that kind of locks the insurgency, and in particular the Caucasus Emirate itself as an organisation, into something of a, of a death spiral. Because you have an insurgency that's not able to answer practical questions. It's not able to clearly say what it's fighting for, what it's hoping to achieve. It's struggling to really combat perceptions that it's reached a dead end. Um, and this is something that its own leaders actually acknowledge themselves. They say, we've reached a dead end and we failed to actually explain where we're going from here. But then you also have the Syrian conflict as kind of an attractive alternative. And so the, the attractive alternative leads to people leaving the North Caucasus, not only directly who have actually been involved in fighting in the insurgents, but those that the insurgency would hope to uh, appeal to who never actually have any involvement with the actual insurgency. Um, but they're attracted by what they see as kind of a another legitimate front of jihad where it's actually possible to, um, shall we say, fight without the imminent prospect of death. So as much as people make jihadists out to be people who are kind of in search of death and devoid of any pragmatic considerations, you actually see a very pragmatic dimension to the fact that people join the Syrian conflict because they see it as a possibility of fighting without it being guaranteed that they'll be dead several months later. And so so you have a weakened insurgency, the appeal of the Syrian conflict, people leaving the North Caucasus to go to the Syrian conflict, which reinforces the impression that the, um, the insurgency is a dead end going nowhere, which leads to more people leaving. And so it kind of gets locked into this spiral um, of decline. And then essentially... With the proclamation of the caliphate, you have debates emerging within the insurgency over whether to pledge allegiance to the caliphate, whether to become part of the Islamic State. And that debate within the insurgency, when it becomes public, leads to the insurgency splitting. And from December 2014, you have... Um, the leader of the Dagestani branch of the insurgency pledging allegiance to the Islamic State. And at this point, the D Dagestani branch is accounting for at least half of insurgent activity in the region. So that's a significant defection. That defection triggers uh, a series of defections by not only leaders in the other republics, but also the lower-ranked leaders throughout the insurgency. So you have kind of a mass exodus from the Caucasus Emirate itself, and you end up with a situation that um, the Caucasus Emirate has no representation in uh, Ingushetia and Chechnya because its leaders there have defected to the Islamic State, and it's in a position of competition with the Islamic State in Kabardino-Balkaria and Dagestan, but the security service pressure is continuing over this period, and so you have uh, countless security service operations that are continually decimating its ranks. And so by August 2015, the Caucasus Emirate really ceases to exist as an organisation because as a result of the split, it's already the weaker party, 
and then its leaders are the first to be killed um, of all the regional leaders. Um, and you have the situation that in August 2015, Magomed Sulemanov, who is the third leader of the Caucasus Emirate, he's killed, and he's the last known leader of the movement as a whole. Because of the defections, you only have one recognized leader across all the four republics, and he's killed a year later. So the current situation is that the Caucasus Emirate as an organization is effectively dead. Then you have the people who defected to the Islamic State, uh, and that pledge of allegiance was accepted by the Islamic State, so it became an official province of the Islamic State. But they're also under security service pressure as well. And so their ranks are also being decimated, and Rustam Asaldirov, who's the leader of the Dagestani branch, who starts off that phase of defections, he's the recognized leader by the Islamic State, but he's also killed in a security service operation. And all of the recognized figures of the insurgency are killed. So what the situation you have at the moment is the Islamic State has its official province in the North Caucasus, but there's absolutely no recognized leadership of the insurgency. There are no known leaders on the ground in the North Caucasus, either aligned with the Caucasus Emirate or aligned with the Islamic State. Uh, instead, what you see now is a very fractured, a, I want to say fractured insurgency, but I mean almost calling it an insurgency is a bit misleading. What you have is sporadic violence, and there's very little evidence of organizational links between the different groups that pop up. So you see groups in Dagestan, for example, that will pop up, uh, and there'll be a group of, say, eight or ten people, and they'll be involved in a security service operation, and then they'll be killed. And then there'll be another group pop up somewhere else, they'll be involved in an operation, and they'll be killed. But there's no real structure, there's no um, organisational framework linking these various groups. They just appear, and they're getting killed. But as an organised insurgency, it doesn't exist anymore. And what about the foreign fighters that we hear about all the time that have gone to the Syrian conflict? We hear a lot about fighters from the Caucasus region. So I was wondering if we could discuss that a bit. Okay, sure. Um, so you have an estimated, the official estimates are around 4,000 Russian citizens who have gone to um, fight in the Syrian conflict. Now, they've come from all across Russia, but about three quarters of them are um, estimated to come from the North Caucasus itself. Now, it's worth um, emphasizing that uh, a fair number of those had nothing to do with the insurgency at home. So you have um, large numbers who have responded to the appeals of various groups, and they're not all Islamic State, um, but they never actually, there's no evidence of them being involved in the insurgency at home. Um, you also have a large number of people who have travelled from outside Russia who are either Russian citizens or ethnic North Caucasians. So... Um, in terms of the, the leaders of the foreign fighters in the Syrian conflict, most of the, the prominent North Caucasian figures actually travelled from outside Russia. So 
you have um, let's see Abu Omar Shoshani, who was the famous um, leader of the North Caucasian fighters who joined the Islamic State. Uh, he's from Georgia. He's from the um, Chechen Kist community uh, in Georgia, in Georgia's Pankisi Gorge. Um, you have um, uh, the leader of Ajnad al-Kafkaz, which is a very small um, Chechen-led faction that's um, independent of other groups. Um, he fought in the North Caucasus Insurgency, but actually travelled from Europe because he'd left the the North Caucasus insurgency uh, years before the actual outbreak of the Syrian conflict. You have Muslim al-Shashani, um, who again uh, came, not only came from outside of Russia, but actually prior to joining the Syrian conflict, tried to rejoin the North Caucasus insurgency, and it was the, the failure to do so that led him to Syria. So you do see in Syria, a significant number of um, Russian citizens. You do see a significant number of ethnic North Caucasians who are fighting. Um, but the it's a very complex mix of people who have actually, actually gone over there. Um, generally speaking, when, when the, the conflict first started, most of them gravitated to the group that became known as Jaysh al-Mujarin wal-Ansar, and they formed um, this very distinct group. And it was this group that kind of split and formed the basis um, of those who then joined the Islamic State. But in terms of those fighting, you actually see people split across numerous groups now. Um, and they're not all aligned to the Islamic State, and you see a very clear divide between those who are aligned to the Islamic State and those who are in the various different groups, including those linked to Al-Qaeda. And that was actually another question I had. How does Al-Qaeda play into all of this? Because, of course, we've been talking about ISIS, but I'm sure Al-Qaeda has a hand in the conflict. Do you mean the, the conflict in the North Caucasus? Yes. Yes. Um, okay, so... I'm glad you brought that up because the uh, the relationship with the kind of the, the global jihadist movement as it is is um, something about which there's a lot of uh, misconceptions, a lot of misunderstandings, uh, and these are particularly prevalent, unfortunately, uh, on the U.S. side of the um, the debate. And you see uh, repeatedly the Caucasus Emirate was repeatedly referred to as if it was an affiliate of Al Qaeda, and the most uh, recent example of that was uh, Bruce Hoffman's article where he talked about the resurgence of Al-Qaeda, uh, and he included a map that had um, claimed that there were 100 fighters in the North Caucasus aligned with, um, with Al-Qaeda. Now, that was, um, that's wrong on two accounts, because firstly, it, it repeats that misleading notion that the Caucasus Emirate was part of Al-Qaeda, which it wasn't. Um, but it's also wrong because the Caucasus Emirate doesn't have 100 people either. So on a purely purely factual level, the idea that the the Caucasus Emirate uh, was part of Al-Qaeda is, is just incorrect. So the, the Caucasus Emirate never pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda. Um, you, there were no pledges of Bayah to either Bin Laden or Ayman al-Zawahiri, and as such, it, it never constituted a formal branch. 
until the death of Doka Umarov, who was the, the founder of the Caucasus Emirate uh, and who led the movement until September 2013. Um, the, the Caucasus Emirate had a very distinct ideology and it had an ideology, ideology that was very distinct from Al-Qaeda. So Umarov, he, in his statements, he employed a very clear hierarchy of enemies. Russia was always the main focus of the insurgency. The North Caucasian authorities were kind of a secondary enemy in that they were regarded as collaborationists and stooges who were allowing Russia's presence in the region. And then the West and the US, insofar as they featured at all, they were very much a, a tertiary concern. There was a great deal of dissatisfaction with the West. Um, there was certainly animosity towards it, but it never translated into saying that the West is our enemy uh, and that we should target the West. Over time, under Umarov, um, that kind of hierarchy of enemies becomes less distinct, but it's never overturned. And at various points in the insurgency, you have other uh, actors, important actors, who explicitly distance themselves from the idea of the US um, as an enemy. So Anzal Stamirov, who I've already mentioned as the, one of the leading architects, um, he explicitly said shortly after the proclamation of the, um, the Caucasus Emirate that the US was not its concern. After the Boston Marathon bombings uh, and the involvement of the Tsarnaev brothers in that, the Dagestani branch issued a statement saying it's not at war with the US. And across the insurgency, you have a very dis different focus rhetorically um, to the agenda advanced by Al-Qaeda. And if you look at the actual activity of the insurgency, who they targeted, including in the major suicide attacks outside the region, then they're targeting predominantly Russian interests and outside the region, often Russian transport hubs. So it's not either rhetorically or in terms of election activity targeting the US, targeting the West at all. So you don't see really any, um, it, it's not matching what would be kind of perceived as the Al-Qaeda agenda. And then if you, you look at the evidence that's actually used to substantiate that claim that the Caucasus Emirate was an Al-Qaeda affiliate, then it's either anachronistic or it's presented in such a simplistic way that it's grossly misleading. So you have kind of various strands to the argument about why it is an affiliate. You have the fact that Shamil Basayev uh, went to Afghanistan in 1994 and he trained in the camps that were Al-Qaeda training camps. That's absolutely true. But... At that time, bin Laden was in Sudan, not in Afghanistan, and those were camps that, the, um, that he had actually ordered to be closed before he left. And also operating in those camps were the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, and the Caucasus Emirate always had strong links with the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan. So uh, as, a, as a supporting fact, it's true that he went to Afghanistan, but it's a bit more complicated than simply he went and trained with al-Qaeda. Then you have the fact that Ayman al-Zawahiri was arrested in Dagestan in 1996. Um, but it's worth mentioning that that was actually before he joined al-Qaeda. So that was when he was still uh, leader of the, his um, al-Jihad movement. 
and before he formally united that with al-Qaeda, and at a time when he was arguably shopping around for support for his movement before he makes that decision to join al-Qaeda. So it's misleading to portray that simply as al-Qaeda going to the North Caucasus. Then you have the Emir Khattab, who is often described as kind of al-Qaeda's emissary or al-Qaeda's leader in the North Caucasus, now, that one is just straight out wrong. If you look at um, Kitab, he argued for a very different focus to jihad. He was very focused on fighting Russia in the North Caucasus. He didn't support targeting the US at all. Um, in terms of his strategies, he very much kind of positioned himself as an Islamist Che Guevara, and he didn't advocate targeting civilians, um, but he saw himself very much as an insurgent leader. And it's worth noting that all of the the terrorist spectaculars, the Beslan, the Nordosks, they all happened after Khatab is dead. Um, in terms of Khatab's like networks in Saudi Arabia, uh, he belonged to very different social networks. And um, Thomas Heghammer has very good good work looking at these different social networks that he belonged to. And at the time he's operating, he not only rejected being subordinate to bin laden but he was arguably because this is before 9 11 he was arguably actually the more influential jihadist leader he had a huge profile among the jihadist community as someone who was on the ground fighting uh, and like i said he had that image of kind of an islamist che Guevara. bin laden would have presumably loved him to actually be his uh, appointee but I don't see any strong evidence that actually really, when you look in detail at who Khattab was, that actually supports that claim that he was Khattab, that he was bin Laden's man in the North Caucasus. Then you have the fact that um, the Taliban recognized the Chechen Republic of Ichkiria. Now, the, the Taliban is obviously a different movement to Al-Qaeda, uh, despite the US policy that treats them as if they're exactly the same. Um, and if you look at the context of when that's happening, it's at a time when both are kind of states that aren't recognized by anyone and they're desperate for any form of external recognition. So there's a very clear context in which that, that recognition is coming. Then you have the fact that um, you have various individuals who try to join the North Caucasus insurgency and then end up in Al-Qaeda. And that includes the 9-11 attackers. But, I mean, the obvious point there is aspirations aren't evidence of actual organisational ties. And that's exactly what Al-Qaeda did. It sold one thing and it delivered another. So it recruited people very much on this classical vision of jihad. And then when it was in its training camps, it redirected them for its own purposes. So the fact that people wanted to join the North Caucasus insurgency isn't really evidence of the North Caucasus insurgency's links with with anyone. And uh, the North Caucasus insurgency actually very deliberately, Khattab in particular, very deliberately turned people away from joining the, the conflict because um, Khattab was very much only interested in skilled people who would actually contribute to the fight as opposed to kind of like the mass mobilization that you see with something like the Islamic State. 
uh, and there was a great deal of concern over infiltration from spies. So it's actually very constrained in terms of their mobilization of that foreign fighter contingent. And then the, the, the final evidence is, that's used to support this claim that the Caucasus Emirate uh, was part of Al-Qaeda is the fact that um, Al-Qaeda claims that the conflict in the North Caucasus is part of its kind of arc of jihad. But that in itself isn't particularly helpful because Al-Qaeda claims leadership of all Muslims and particularly any Muslims who are fighting anywhere. And that's not actually indicative of the actors' preferences of those who they are claiming leadership of. So if you look at all of this various evidence, I think, yes, it's important to take all of these factors into consideration, and these are all important data points, but if you actually properly contextualise them and actually understand the details around each of those data points, then the evidence of the North Caucasus insurgency is kind of links to al-Qaeda in particular are a lot less conclusive. At the same time, even though it's untrue to say that the Caucasus Emirate was part of al-Qaeda, it's equally untrue to say that it had nothing at all to do with the global jihadist movement. So as I said, when it was proclaimed, the Caucasus Emirate um, explicitly aligned itself with jihadist movements fighting elsewhere. So it claimed to be part of that global struggle between um, Muslims and non-believers. The Caucasus Emirate cited many of the same scholars, um, and so Astamirov, for example, uh, corresponded with Abu Muhammad al-Muqdisi, who's generally regarded as one of the ideologists of al-Qaeda. And then you have the fact that over time, um, particularly after the death of Amarov, the Caucasus Emirate does actually move closer to al-Qaeda. So particularly with the Syrian conflict, um, Ali Askab Kabekov, who was the, the leader after Umarov, the Caucasus Emirate, he moved the, the, um, the Caucasus Emirate very, very close to joining al-Qaeda. Uh, and he fully accepted Zawahiri's authority, for example, over the Syrian conflict. Uh, and he cited its position as justification for the insurgency's own position with regard to rejecting the Islamic State. That it didn't happen, that the Caucasus Emirate didn't actually join um, al-Qaeda, is probably because at that moment, both movements seemed to be at the lowest ebb. So at that point, the al-Qaeda was looking in, in a pretty critical state, um, because that was really when the Islamic State was at its peak. Uh, and although the Caucasus Emirate itself wasn't at its lowest ebb because it managed to actually go lower and eventually cease to exist, at that moment it was at a very low point as well. And so I think at that time you see that there's no real strategic advantage to either party of the Caucasus Emirate joining al-Qaeda. But if you look at kind of that, if you take a step back and look at that relationship as a whole, I mean, the, it's a very complicated relationship between the the North Caucasus insurgency and the global jihadist movement. But it's far more complicated than simply the Caucasus Emirate is Al-Qaeda. It was never Al-Qaeda. Um, and the closest it came was when both movements were kind of at their weakest points. And the, those fighting in the North Caucasus, and you see the same in Syria now for a number of the groups, um, they have very distinct goals. And they very much see Russia as the primary enemy. So they're not interested in targeting the West. 
it is Russia that is them, their main focus. At the same time, because the, there's that, should we say, ideological affinity, um, there's certainly no hostility towards Al-Qaeda. There's no hostility towards that kind of global jihadist movement insofar as it actually exists. And there is a great deal of antipathy towards uh, the West, towards the US. Um, so it's kind of, if, let's say, for example, you were to see um, the Caucasus Emirate would have information that Al-Qaeda was about to target the West. You certainly wouldn't see that um, the Caucasus Emirate suddenly going to phone the US Embassy and tell them about that. They don't see Al-Qaeda as their enemy. They see them as being close to being their friends, but they are not one and the same thing. So that was a fantastic overview of, as you call it, the global jihadist movements and how the groups in the North Caucasus fit in or don't fit in. So we like to give our listeners at the end of the show a moment to touch upon something that we might not have touched upon or to provide a final thought. So I wanted to hand over the floor to you, Mark, and give you that opportunity. Well, that's the... That's a, that's a difficult one. Um, I think, I mean, as you, as you noted, um, my focus is very much on ideology. And I think uh, a lot of the misconceptions over the ideology, both of the, the North Caucasus insurgency uh, and of many other insurgencies around the world, comes from a neglect of actually looking at what, the insurgencies themselves have to say. So I think my final point would be when you see people making claims about the ideology, the ideological orientation, the ideological trajectory, or the allegiances of particular groups, the first thing I'd say is always check the source notes because a lot of the time there are people who are making claims who aren't actually looking at any of the material produced by the insurgency, and they're very much recycling second-hand stereotypes. Uh, and unfortunately, this is something you see all the time in the U.S. Uh, with relation to the North Caucasus insurgency, that it's becoming kind of become kind of embedded that the Caucasus Emirate is Al Qaeda, um, and it it kind of like perpetuates itself that people cite other people who have previously made this claim. Uh, and if you go for all of these claims, there's very little reference to actually anything that the insurgency itself has actually said. I think if you look at the statements that are made by insurgencies, um, you obviously don't take them at face value. Um, and, you know, you have to critically analyze them, critically approach them. Uh, but they do tell you a great deal more about the group's than often they actually want to tell you. So they tell you a great deal about what their preferences are, who their preferred allies are, the things that they don't talk about tell you a great deal. So my final point is if you see people making claims, check to see are they actually looking at what the insurgencies and the movements and its leaders and its people are actually uh, producing? Have they actually talked to the relevant people uh, involved in terms of, uh, you know, in some cases it's possible to do field research. Uh, in others, it's possible to actually consult the material that they put out. 
is that work actually being done and is the kind of like the conclusions that are being reached, are they being substantiated by actual reference to the voices of the people themselves? Because I don't think you can adequately understand any of the insurgent movements anywhere in the world without actually looking at what they have to say for themselves. Uh, and you can obviously, you check their claims, you check what, you know, how it actually relates to their behaviours, but they do tell you a great deal. And so I would just say, always check to see whether people are actually have the evidence to make the claims that they're making. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Mark. You've really given us a fantastic overview and also in-depth on certain topics on this conflict, which I'm so happy to have because I feel like there hasn't been enough discussion on this. So thank you so much for being on the Loopcast and talking about your research and your interests and this really fantastic topic. Well, thank you very much for having me.